J. Lauren Norris. Welcome to Lead the Narrative. Man, we have some important guests coming into the studio today. We're going to start with Hassan. Uh, I really look forward to this. Hassan is a leadership guy as well, uh, but a little bit unique in the world of leadership in that he bases the majority of what he teaches on leadership on historical documentation, old novels, old literature, things of that nature, which obviously is right up my alley. And I love the idea that we can begin to have some discussions about the historicity the reality of these relationships that have gone way by and look at the genuine impact that they have on our world today as opposed to some of the silliness that's being taught as truth. So I want you to help me welcome Hassan. Thank you for being here, sir. I appreciate you Thank you, you being very here. much for having me. part of this on. conversation. I'm, I'm excited to begin. I'm, I'm excited to be on your show and I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, we were talking before we even went on camera mm -hmm. about this idea of a Boswell and for People who don't know what a Boswell is, it was kind of a name given. It was a, a you might call it a slang or a nickname, but it was an ascription to mm -hmm. an individual who would be the smartest person in the house. Right. In the days of slavery, in the 1860s, this would be your human Google. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't know the answer to a question, you could turn to your Boswell, your, your house person, and say, hey, help me with this. And ironically, it was the... It was the one person of color mm -hmm. that was allowed to be educated to an extreme level. They could be taught anything. They could know anything. They could be experienced and educated in anything because that was their role. That was their job. Exactly. Now, yeah. the irony is that meant that the aristocrat at the table, the intelligent, articulate, important person, <laughs> didn't have to know anything because he's got his Boswell. We might say today, you know, high school students don't have to be the most intelligent. They just have to know where to go look mm -hmm. for the information. And as I was saying that, you were telling me about W.B. Du Bois mm -hmm. and, and some other people of that ilk in that time frame. And I, please just jump back into that conversation and carry on with your thought. Sure, absolutely. So uh, once again, thank you for having me on the show. I really do appreciate what you're doing here. And I really do appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, thank you. and all the other folks who are watching. So yeah, the, the concept of a Boswell or the concept of a, um, an, an African-American uh, or, or a descendant of African slaves, right, who would be sort of the Google of the household or be the Encyclopedia Britannica, if we want right. really old school, <laughs> of, the, of the way back um, of the household. That idea led to some interesting bifurcations in African-American culture which have come down to us over the course of time and have created false narratives um, about separation in the black community, uh, separation based on ideas, separation based on status, separation based on class, that um, really have created other issues that we see now. So uh, when you talk about W.B. Du Bois, uh, most of the time he's mentioned in the same breath as Booker T. Washington, right? Because they lived in the same time frame. Because they lived in the same time frame, right? right. But Booker T. Washington was, for all intents and purposes, uh, a self-made individual. You know, if you read up from slavery, he was a slave and was born into slavery and had to teach himself how to read, had to teach himself how to uh, talk, how to walk, how to put things together, um, how to persuade, how to convince, how to convert. Uh, and had to do it in a hard scrabble kind of way. W.B. Du Bois, on the other hand, came out of that, in, that 
that seed of the Boswell, right? Um, his parents in, I believe it was Massachusetts, were landowners, okay? Right. And so he was able to, you know, go to Harvard. He was able to travel widely. He was able to learn different languages. And so this created um, a separation. He was not born into slavery. He was not born into a hard scrabble existence. So what this did was this created a bifurcation in African-American culture, which of course led to a current narrative that we have that there are these elites that are in charge of African-American thought or African-American engagement in America, and that these elites will then tell the washerwoman or will then tell the person who is, uh, well, who's, uh, whose feet are tired and doesn't want to get up out of her seat on the bus. They will tell those folks which direction to go in, uh, which way black America, right? Uh, but there's another side to that tension, and that is the Booker T. Washington side. And quite frankly, um, I come out of that that space. Um, I do fundamentally believe that, yes, you know, racism and uh, racial injustice was a problem. I believe that it is no longer a problem. Uh, I believe that we do have access. There are going to be people who are going to yell and scream <laughs> at you about this, but this is part of the narrative that is placed forth by elites, particularly African-American elites, and I could name names now, uh, I don't need to do that, but if you are watching anything on social justice, if you're watching right. anything coming out of any, uh, any knowledge coming out of elite writing or elite institutions, you can see that, oh wait, these people are pushing a particular narrative. And it is a narrative of division, it's a narrative of divisiveness, it's a narrative that no longer works for African Americans in our current time and place. And by the way, middle class African Americans have been knowing this for years, this is no secret. It really seems ironic to me too because from a white man's perspective, mm -hmm. I, I hear conversations and I intentionally listen in, with great intention mm -hmm. to um, a Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. a Candace Owens. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say they very much like Booker T and De Bruyne, mm -hmm. totally different Absolutely. worldviews. Yep. A, a Thomas Sowell and a Ben Carson yep. versus an Ibram Kendi mm -hmm. uh, or a Michael Eric Dyson. Mm -hmm. And these are not people who are unintelligent no. or, or uneducated. These no. are not people who are, I'm just trying to make it, man, You know, give me some food stamps so I can get to the next week. Right. I lived on potato soup and food stamps for a large portion of my life. I grew up the only son of a single mom in a small town. Mm -hmm. I, I know what that's like. I know what it's like not to have a man providing or protecting or, or disciplining or mentoring. Mm -hmm. So I get that. So the plight of the single mom trying to raise her family in, in this a challenging world where our society seems to have intentionally created a demand for a two-parent income mm -hmm. uh, just to be able to, to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, as you said, the middle-class mm -hmm. African-American family that would say, uh, we're not living on the food stamps and potato soup. We're not waiting for somebody else just to help us out to get through the next week. We figured it out. We mm -hmm. paid for our cars. We paid for our house. Our kids are going to college. Um, maybe not elite mm -hmm. status, but but we're not wanton for anything. Sure. Um, how do we get to the place where there are those, ironically, uh, who are not of African-American descent, mm -hmm. who feel like there's still a plight or a pity or a, a guilt? Reparations are being considered in California, for an example. <laughs> Well, you, you, you opened the door there. You said the R word, right? And yes. I, I wasn't really planning on talking about this today, but it's okay because this is also part of the narrative, yes. right? So let's really break down reparations. 
and I'm and I'm going to be completely transparent on this. As a middle class to upper middle class, you know, uh, black American um, who is living out the promise that Martin Luther King Jr. fought and died for. I'm living out that promise, and my children will live out the further extension of that promise. Um, my one nephew is currently living out that promise. My, my sisters, in one form or another, are living out that promise, right? We're part of the generation, and, and I'm in my mid-40s now, we're part of the generation that took that promise and, and took it seriously and took the next steps forward. I'm going to go on record and say this. And I've said it on my own podcast before, which you can take a listen to. Uh, I talk about this uh, somewhat during uh, Black History Month in February. And of course, I revisit it in July when we talk about every year, we do on the podcast every year, we talk about the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and the Anti-Federalist Papers. Um, because I do not believe that we, as Americans in general, understand our founding documents nearly deeply enough. Nor do leaders understand them right. nearly deeply enough. Okay, so all of that is the water under the bridge for this. For what I'm about to say, uh, want to go on record as saying I, I I don't need reparations and I don't want them. I think reparations are a divisive idea fundamentally. I think they are a morally wrong idea, <laughs> and it offends me morally as a as a as a Black American. It offends me that. The work that my mother's generation did and my grandmother's generation and my father's generation and my grandfather's generation did, the hard work that they did to be accepted at the table just so that they could do the work is now somehow being turned into a historical guilt process. By the way, in a time when our culture and our society is becoming more multicultural and multi-ethnic, not less, when we have people coming into the country currently, um, people who are coming out of um, Hispanic countries, Central American countries, um, Mexican, Mexico, uh, coming out of South America, uh, immigrating, of course, places like uh, Asia, right, that have no history of any type of oppression in America are now being pressed upon to give of their tax dollars, quite frankly, to a bunch of people they never oppressed. That makes no logical sense to me, and quite frankly, I don't buy it. And again, it's an immoral argument to me. Uh, I look at it as theft. I look at it as theft from uh, the future in order to pay for sins of the past that quite frankly, in my opinion, and, uh, and again, I will go on record of this, I think those sins have already been paid for. I, I think we're done. I think Abraham Lincoln's idea that um, you know every drop of blood drawn by the lash from a slave's back shall be repaid by a drop of blood drawn by the sword. I think that has been done. 750,000 white people, quite frankly, died in the Civil War. That's over, we're finished. African Americans in America don't need reparations. African Americans in America need a dismantling of the welfare state. They need a uh, re-edification re or a reorientation, that's a better term, a reorientation towards uh, a two-parent household, particularly at certain poverty and class levels. They also need a reorientation towards exactly what education does for you. And we can talk about elite institutions if you would like, um, because that's another space where the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action is really going to impact not the middle-class African Americans or the middle-class black Americans, it's going to impact the elite black Americans. So. 
One of the things that I've heard a lot of crosstalk mm -hmm. about is when you talk about slaves in America. Yes. People want to talk about the amount of time. Yep. How long were people enslaved? They want to talk about how old is the slave trade? They want to talk about uh, America being the, the chief offender when it comes to slavery. They want to talk about it was only done to African Americans. And, and if you really push the issue with them, many will say, well, but when they came and started taking over the lands, the colonizers also enslaved indigenous peoples mm -hmm. as well. And there's never the counter uh, or so I have so seldom experienced it as to say it's uncommon, uh, the counter that there were actually more people whose skin tone looked like mine mm -hmm. enslaved by the Barbary pirates and the Muslim nations along the, the northern coast of Africa mm -hmm. uh, for a longer period of time mm -hmm. uh, than there ever were on what we would now call the continental U.S. Mm -hmm. There were more people of different indigenous tribes that were enslaved <laughs> by each other uh, than the volume of people who were put on ships and brought from Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, there was some responsibility in the way of reparations uh, to the African warlords and kings and tribal leaders on the African continent mm -hmm. that offered up their people mm -hmm. to the slave trade as product or, or a, a consumable product to be sold. Mm -hmm. So how do you put the logic into all of that to say, you know, whether it's reparations or it's a welfare state or it's the education or it's the demand of society to have a two-parent family and, and what does the breaking down of the family look like? How do you make sense of that to someone, uh, let's say a high school student, who has been told from day one, uh, it's only in America, it's always been, you know, it's 400 years of history now, 1619 Project, um, and it, it's only blacks who've been victims, and therefore I am a perpetual victim and you owe me. So if you want to break a victim mentality, uh, there's a couple of different ways to do that. Uh, the primary way is through the truth right? Uh, the kinds of truths that you just mentioned, right? That you just laid out there. Um, and by the way, truths and facts sometimes don't overlap. <laughs> and so we need, to, we need to separate facts from truths, right? We also need to be very clear in separating truths from lies um, and figuring out very clearly and succinctly why those lies are being told and of course why the truth is being sometimes shaded or abrogated. Overall, what I would say, and, and I have, you know, I have, a, I have a couple of teenagers living in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I've not only had these conversations, but I've also, um, I've also, you know, educated my children in this kind of way. Uh, slavery is a human condition, okay? It is not a racial condition. Slavery is also, and I'm going to say an old school word here on your show. I'm going to go real old school here. Slavery is a sin, from the Greek term hamartia, meaning to miss the mark. Okay. The greatest block to slavery in the history of humanity was Christianity. When you say block, do you mean the greatest number of people who are involved in it or the, or the greatest obstacle to its success? The greatest obstacle to its success and the element that ensured its continual demise and also the element that ensured individuals have a continual problem with it. So um, we like to talk about the past.
past, right? We'd like to talk about slavery in terms of uh, the, the African slave trade or the Middle Passage or the Barbary pirates, or even if we want to go back in time, the Greeks and the Romans, right? Or the Hebrews. If we go back to Babylon and, and, and sort of uh, the Jewish experience in Egypt, right? 400, talk about 400 years, right? Um, hard bondage, making um, bricks without straw. Okay. But we never talk about what happening, what's happening right now in our own time. In our own time, there is uh, the trafficking of children that is going on right now. There is the trafficking of women that is going on right now. There is the trafficking of other, <laughs> not other, but human beings in various places going on right now for the purposes of moving drugs or for the purposes of moving just human capital around, right? Right. There's also issues of, uh, and issues around, um, how we uh, not only abort children, but also how we engage in euthanasia. Those are other abominable forms of human bondage that seem to get swept under the rug when we talk about this issue. Now, look, if I were talking to a, a high school student, I would say your time and attention and energy and effort is better spent fixing the child slavery issue or the child sex slavery issue or the human trafficking issue than fighting battles that have already been won. And as far as the guilt that you feel, well, conscientious people, we know this from studying the big five factors of personality, people who are conscientious tend to feel uh, guilt because they're conscientious, because they are duty-bound, because they want to fix something. And you have elements in our society and culture that look at that and, and manipulate that sense of conscientiousness because it serves them. It serves their narrative. Uh, I think we need to abandon the manipulation. Uh, manipulation is just uh, deceiving people for the benefit of the target rather than, or sorry, not the target, but the benefit of the user of the manipulation and the persuasion right. rather than the target. Um, I am a big fan of persuasion, which is where um, I need you to do something for your own good because it will benefit you. So we need to shift the narrative from one of guilt to one of um, of uh, not necessarily direct action, but focusing on what we can fix now and moving our conscientiousness to now rather than fighting old battles that have already been won. It's pretty amazing. I was, I was watching uh, a news report last night. It was a direct interview with a guy who works for Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. He has been assigned the responsibility of overseeing this uh, hotel in New York. Mm -hmm. And this particular hotel has been um, committed by... By the state of New York, this hotel has been handed over mm -hmm. to Homeland Security mm -hmm. to house those who are coming into this temporary state of living, mm -hmm. one might say. They're, they're immigrants. They've come across the border. Mm -hmm. And whatever their status, legal or otherwise, is, they are now finding themselves living in this hotel mm -hmm. until they have a, another option. And as he was discussing it, he said there's roughly 5,000 that are living in this hotel. And he said this hotel initially was a $500 a night stay right here in New York City. If you wanted to come with you and your wife and kids to stay in this hotel was $500 a night. If you brought an extra adult with you, you could add some to that. You either have to add another room because you can only put so many people in a room legally, et cetera, et cetera. He said, but now all of those expectations are completely out the window. Mm -hmm. And we'll have eight, 10 or 12 people in a room. We mm -hmm. have three new births every week. Um, and so this is an ongoing problem. He said, but, you know, this is nothing of the drugs, the violence, 
the gun violence, the fist fights, the domestic abuse. We've had parents with four or five 10 to 12 year old kids that are all in the same room with them. And the kids, you know, get in trouble and we take them back to their room and realize the parents have been gone for two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. And so literally we have small familial gangs that are five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 kids mm -hmm. that are unsupervised and yep. nobody's watching over them. And yet we're providing them three meals a day. We're doing the housekeeping in their rooms. We're doing their laundry for them. They're free to come and go as they wish. If they decide to pack up and go somewhere else, they're welcome to go anywhere they want to. Mm -hmm. And in the back of my mind the whole time, I'm thinking, how is this not a modernized version of slavery? Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, they're free to go, but where will they go? Right. How will they go? Right. And what will they find when they get there? This doesn't sound like a journey that I would want to be on by myself, mm -hmm. especially if I'm 10 or 12 years old and in a new country where I may or may not speak the language, that does not sound like a promising freedom mm -hmm. to me. What are your thoughts on that in, in light of what you know from slavery hist historically and sure. what we're experiencing in, across the world today? Sure. So this sounds like what you, what you just related to me from Homeland Security. Uh, <laughs> whiffs of bureaucratic laziness and bureaucratic immorality. Uh, I'm going to just frame it that way. So, look, um, this is not an issue of resources. We're the wealthiest country that has ever existed in the history of the world. This is not an issue of resources. This is not even an issue of... Um, of, um, of uh, how do we navigate... Uh, taking these children, taking these families, and putting them in better situations, or even, I will go a step further, making them citizens. It's not even really an issue of that. That's, that's an issue of political will. But it's not even really an issue of that, because if the Congress wanted to do it, they could, uh, either Democrat or Republican, but it serves both parties to, to not do it. Um, but they could, right? Um, the president could, could sign executive orders, which the president has signed many executive orders um, dealing, with, uh, dealing with the border, and not just this current president, the president's going back to, oh gosh, Ronald Reagan, okay, so this is not a current issue. The real challenge here, when I hear this, is we are in what I frame as a, and I want to be very clear, this is a spiritual battle. This is, a, this is not a battle between uh, material entities, although it does have material consequences, right? right? This is a battle between, um, you know, do we, do we do the moral and correct thing and risk our jobs and raise our voices? Or do we collect our check, pay our rent, put a Band-Aid on the problem, say it's not my problem, and go home? And by the way, this is not, I want to be very clear again, this is not a new challenge. This has always been the battle in the world, right? It's just here and now in, in this time where real genuine leadership that defines this battle accurately is missing. Hey, if you're watching this right now and you're enjoying this conversation, I would love for you to stay around. I'd love for you to hang around. Uh, we're going to continue to live stream this on Rumble, and it will be available there on Rumble as well as on leadthenarrative.com. But if you're watching on television and you're getting to the end of this, you need to be a subscriber. We appreciate you being a part of this conversation. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Lead the Narrative TV, U.S. Air Force veteran, died in the wool patriot, 
believer of the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. And I believe I need to hear your story as well. Join us on leadthenarrative.com and pitch in. Help us lead the narrative. You will either lead the narrative or you'll be led by it. Right. And we don't have politicians that at any level, uh, at least none that I've found, and, and I'm willing to be corrected on this, we don't have politicians at any level that are willing to frame it in this type of way because either MSNBC will kill you or Fox will kill you or um, some uh, a conservative commentator on YouTube with 65 million views per episode will kill you um, or some podcaster somewhere will get a hold of you and will, will kill you the other way, right? Or your lobbyists will get a hold of you and say, hey, we just donated to your last campaign. Shut your mouth. Right. This is a moral problem, this, which means it's a spiritual problem, which means it's a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual war. This is a war between powers and principalities. You can see this in Ephesians, um, <laughs> you know, sort of framing it that way, right? Um, but that framing doesn't work. And this is the reason why, that it, why this, 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 this issue with slavery or this issue with human trafficking is not framed in these kinds of terms. And by the way, you can frame a lot of other issues in these kinds of terms. So abortion is not necessarily an issue of a baby in, and, and a choice, right? It's, it's not even really that. It's how do we morally look at life, right? Euthanasia it's, on the back it's end. So much easier, so much easier to bifurcate the reality and the conversation when you can bring it down to its most ridiculous level. Absolutely. And, and, and if you can get down to two points that no one can really argue, then you can argue those as loud as you want to. And, you know, the Apple Uncle. Ash Lines test that yeah. said, you know, everybody looks at the line and says it's the same length until everybody disagrees. Perfect example of this. And I think it, it fits in exactly with what you're saying. Uh, my wife and I went for dinner uh, on July 3rd. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so we're sitting in a place, there's an outdoor band playing, we're mm -hmm. enjoying our hamburger, having a good time, and they start playing God Bless the USA. Mm -hmm. um, I'm married to a woman with the actual name Karen, mm -hmm. but there was another Karen there, and I don't know if it was her name or not, but she stood up in her little all-white outfit and her perfectly white hair and her very white skin, mm -hmm. and she stood up and put her hand over her heart when they started playing God Bless the USA. Mm -hmm. And then she... Like an old librarian school teacher looked down her nose at everyone who didn't stand until they all did. <laughs> I was sitting at my table with my Desert Storm veteran hat on, mm -hmm. and she looked over at me like I had just run over her cat. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, I didn't get up. I probably passed the bridge. I still was not standing. <laughs> and I looked at my wife and I said, so do we stand to placate the Karen or do we sit because she's a knucklehead and this is not our national anthem? Right. We stood for the last couple of lines of the song to, to placate her and she, boy, you could see the victory on her face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have loved to have had a conversation, taken the mic and just taught people, you don't even know what the national anthem is. If, if you feel like you've got that kind of loyalty to this song, you have missed it, but it's exactly what you're talking about. When we frame the conversation at its highest level, mm -hmm. uh, everyone misses the conversation. Correct. But it's like the Plinko game. We're only looking at the little disc as it's reached the very bottom of the conversation. Well, and the question that I always ask, and, and I love that example that you're bringing up because that reveals a lack of civics education uh, that goes back longer than probably I've been alive. <laughs> Uh, and yes, I am widely read and well read. And so, you know, even I know, come on, what are we doing here? Um, 
But there's a lot of people that I have to check myself constantly all the time. There's a lot of people who just don't know what I know. The other dynamic you have going on, and this is a genuine one, is we are in the midst of a spiritual crisis. However, I do think, and I, I did want to bring some of this up today on the show, I do think we are, we, we've made a decision, I can feel something clicking over in the cultural zeitgeist. And I don't know if I'm just hopeful or if something has actually actually shifted. It's almost imperceptible. I think the Republic has made a decision. Now, I don't know what that decision is, but I can feel it like a click whir in my head. It's like a turn. I can feel it in my soul. I can feel it in my spirit. I still think there are a lot of battles left to be fought because there's a lot of problems left to be solved. And so we, we have an issue here, talking about history, we have an issue here of the 20th century. And the 20th century is a century we have not fully dealt with yet because we, we can't. We're, there's still too many of us who were born in it, right. <laughs> you and I, <laughs> who, have, who are too, too historically close to it, right? Um, our grandkids will deal with it. Our, our, my kids will deal with it, right? The ones that were born in the 21st century. Um, but we need to start setting up the narrative for them for how to frame the 20th yes. century correctly. And here's the framing of the 20th century. Um, we... we um, uh, made a deal, basically, with the capitalists and the industrialists. And we said, you give us three huts and a cot and a house and a, and a fence, and we'll keep our spirituality, we'll keep our Jesus, we'll put all of that over here. And in exchange for putting that over here, you'll give us a home, you'll give us a paycheck, and you'll make sure the wheels don't run off, the, don't go off the rails. Right. And with the exception of a few bumps in the 20th century, which were major, by the way, World War II, Vietnam, um, at the, uh, at the geopolitical mm -hmm. level, Korea, um, and then towards the, uh, the latter end, you talked about Desert Storm, the Desert Cold Storm, War. the yeah. Cold War. With the exception of those kinds of bumps and then some, some civil issues that happened in the United States, the civil rights issue and some other things, with the exception of those few bumps... From Watts to George Floyd. Right. Everything kind of remained sort of kind of stable. Stable from the perspective of, I can go to my job, I can get a check, the system yeah. sort of kind of works. And if you work a little harder, get a little better job, work a little harder, get a little better education. Exactly, that was the deal. expands. Right. And we kept up, we, from the perspective of individuals uh, in the Republic, kept up our end of the deal. The thing is, what was revealed over the course, I would say, of the back half of the 20th century, so I would say from probably... 1992 uh, forward to now, what has been revealed with more and more layers being peeled away from the onion is, <laughs> I'm going to use a very loaded term here, but because we're on Rumble, I guess maybe I can use this term, but I'm going to go ahead and use this term. Um, we, 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 it's now being revealed how far off the reservation the elites went and how far away they are separated from us. And so... The dynamic in that has caused things to shift around and has caused things to move. So we are in the midst of a third turning. We're in the midst of, I, I think we're in the midst of something that I would even so boldly as to say, not in our time, but I think in our grandkids' time, maybe even in our great-grandkids' time, we'll come to a third founding of the United States. But I think we're laying the foundation for that right now. Now, there are those who would say, in fact, the, the phrase has been used 
the fourth industrial revolution. Absolutely, yes. If you're looking globally, sure, the fourth turning, okay, uh, so the fourth industrial revolution. So the, sure. the real question that I have as we look at exactly what we've talked about, you know, there, there's been this, uh, they'll cry peace where there is no peace, mm-hmm. but it looks peaceful because mm-hmm. there are so many people like many wealthy in Germany at the time of, of the rise of Adolf Hitler who said, he's not coming for me. He's not after my job. I'm, I'm sorry that that's happening to you, but it's not my problem. Sure. And if I do get involved in your problem, then it becomes my problem and I don't need any more problems as long as I can continue on the path of prosperity that I'm on. And it's almost as if we've swapped our duty, our responsibility in our human ecosystem mm-hmm. for the peace and prosperity message? Yes, but. So while you're thinking on that answer, I want to add one more layer to it and ask the question, at what point did the elites go off the rail? Has that been just in this last (laughs) century? Or how far back can we go? Because I think back to Pontius Pilate Mm -hmm. and the Jews of the day Mm -hmm. in Jerusalem, Mm being ruled by the Caesars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an elite class overseeing the working class and what they would consider the dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe there was a woman who referred to herself and he would. she was told, you know, the food at the table is for the kids. And she right. said, yes, but even the scraps can be thrown to the dogs under the table. Yep. Just give me the scraps. Yep. The woman with the blood issue who touched Jesus' cloak. And so we all kind of have that subconscious understanding that we're at a different striation of life mm-hmm. and it may be based on income it may be based on education it may be based on on what we know there's a great book by uh, eugene peterson called tell it slant and in the book he points out how the woman at the well uh said well one group of people says do it like this another group of people says do it like this debo booker t washington mm-hmm. malcolm x martin luther king jr mm-hmm. candace owens mm-hmm. amali mm-hmm. Uh, major differences where you would think there would be a lot of similarity. And his reply to her as a rabbi was, woman, you're ignorant. And he didn't mean you're stupid and unable to understand. What he was saying was what you expressed that the elites kind of have gone their own way. And that is, you have intentionally not been given Mm -hmm. the information so that the decisions that you make are purposefully manipulated Mm -hmm by a lack of information. Mm-hmm. How does all that dovetail into the thought that, that you're, you're walking through? So as I said, yes, but, and here's the but. Um, the United States is the, to paraphrase from the movie Die Hard, the monkey in the wrench. <laughs> it's, the, uh, it's the dirt in the oil. <laughs> yes. And the reason why the United States is that, and this is what makes the United States system and the United States and the conception of people in the United States of who they are, um, not who they are in terms of what they actually do in their actual behavior. That's the same as any other human being who's ever existed. But I mean, our conception is exceptional, to to go back to, to, to Tocqueville a little bit here. This is what makes us exceptional, and this is what makes the United States exceptional. You mentioned Caesar, you mentioned Pontius Pilate, you mentioned even, you kind of obliquely mentioned the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? All of those people, and by the way, up until now, even you have this in, 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 the, in the elites, all of those people 
were above the box they would put other people in. So Caesar says, you're in the box, I'm Caesar. Julius Caesar even says this in, um, in um, or Shakespeare quotes Julius Caesar in Julius Caesar saying this. Even I am, I'm always Caesar, right? There's not a time I can ever put it down, right? Right. That's because you put these people in a box, you say, I'm Caesar over here, and that's it. The strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. The Greeks knew this years ago, right? Way back in the day, back in the day. Um, but the United States says something different. The United States, because of our founding documents, um, starting with uh, the Declaration of Independence, which really comes out of ideas that came out of the Magna Carta, okay, which we often forget, but the Declaration of Independence, um, the U.S. Constitution say that Caesar is below the words on this paper. Caesar is below, and this is even more revolutionary, and, and Thomas Jefferson didn't go this far because, as a noted deist, he wasn't going to go this far, but he knew. If you ever, got, if you ever get TJ on the show, let me know. <laughs> I want to have, come on and have a chat with him. But um, the fundamental thing that exists in the Constitution and the reason why Caesar or the Republic or even the President or the elite have to sit below that and why it rankles them so is because... It is a reaffirmation of an idea that's deeply embedded in the West, which starts in the Bible, that the word is the thing that is preordinate above everything else. Word made flesh. Um, in Genesis, you know, God spoke the word, the world into existence, right? The word is the thing that is powerful. Caesar you're not above the world, and you ain't God. Right. There's these things that are above you. And so when I talk, when people talk about Germany and try to compare us to, to, to the Weimar Republic, that comparison sort of works if you're just looking at material issues like inflation. Yeah, if I'm, you're just looking at the striations of life. If you're just life. looking at the striations of life, that comparison works perfectly, right? right. Um, I'm not a fan of the Fed. I'm not a fan of rampant inflation. Trust me, that's a problem that needs to be fixed. But in the, but in the Weimar Republic, they were coming out of a monarchy that had been razzed all the way down to the ground by World War I. By the way, a and war... And subjugated. And subjugated, that's right. And a war that came out of an idea, a monarchical idea, that somehow, <laughs> to paraphrase Nietzsche, <laughs> that demon in the basement of Western culture, we could kill God, and that there wouldn't be enough uh, water to, uh, to wash the blood of his death off of our hands. And then we would ascend as supermen into this glorious meaning. Well, guess what? We tried that with various ideologies in the 20th century. Remember how I said the 20th century hadn't fully been dealt with yet? We haven't fully dealt with the ideology of communism. We haven't fully dealt with the ideology of totalitarianism. We haven't fully dealt with the idea ideological tyrannies of the 20th century. We haven't fully, we don't even teach, you talk about the, the, the kid in, in high school who's talking about slavery. Uh, Kids in high school aren't even taught about communism anymore. And if they are, it's Che Guevara. And he's right. awesome. And he's awesome, and I get a cool shirt with his face on it, right? No, no, Che Guevara was a murderer who would kill you just as soon as he'd look at you. 
because he bought into Lenin, not the Beatle, the other guy. Right. He bought into Lenin's idea that in order to build a more perfect union, uh, or in order to make an omelet, you had to break a few eggs. So, we are in this spot where we haven't fully dealt with the 20th century, and we can't. Uh, not yet. We're starting to, but it's going to be a long struggle. We're also in this process where we exist in a system that says the words of the Constitution and the words of the Declaration of Independence are bigger than any Caesar or any elite. And so there is a constant tension, a constant struggle that is unique to the United States. This is why, while every other tyrant, communist and otherwise, right or left, loves the words of the Declaration of Independence, not one of them has made a constitution in their country when they take over that's anything like the United States Constitution. Well, then a lot of it goes back to we the people. Correct. In order to form a more perfect union. Right. Not perfect now. More perfect maybe sometime in the future we're getting there. Well, and more perfect meaning better than what else is available. Mm -hmm. And with the... Constant and consistent progression toward better Correct. than it is now. Correct. A more perfect union, not perfect straight up. Yeah. And they, I think they knew that. But I, I also think, and, and it's ironic that our, our current leadership uh, fumbled through that we hold these truths to be self-evident. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know the thing. Well, you what, know the thing. What thing are you talking about? <laughs> Thank you. And, and I've, heard, I've heard pundits say, you know, the thing. You mean God. No, he's, that's not the thing he's talking about. The thing he's talking about is the Constitution. But it is ironic that you point out that the words of the Declaration of Independence, the words of the Constitution, the words of those documents were held to say, this is an umbrella that covers all humanity, mm -hmm. slave and free, mm -hmm. male and female, mm -hmm. rich and poor, religious and not religious. Mm -hmm. Regardless of your religious denomination, you have the right to be a free human under the umbrella that God has given you those rights no man has. Correct. And because God gave them to you, no man should try to take them from you. And because that's true, every battle we fought in the U.S. since then has been the ideological battle of... Who really owns me? Correct. Is it me? Is it my neighbor? Is it God? Is it some ideology? Is it some other nation? Mm -hmm. And that has been a fundamental battle from the very founding of our nation. I think back, I was listening recently to a, a couple of intellectuals, way smarter than me, discussing Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. And they talked about the 95 Thesis. Mm -hmm. And one of the conjectures that was made, he said, you know, I, I don't picture that this was some tomato soup and glued to the, to the art and the wall of the Smithsonian kind of a moment for him. No. I, I don't think he boldly paraded himself to the giant wooden doors of the Catholic Church and with a, a giant sledgehammer nailed these things to the wall. I think it was more like he came in on a Sunday morning and stuck it on the bulletin board with a thumbtack and went, here's what I think, and waited to see if anybody cared. Correct, yep. The fact that we've blown that so distortedly into a changing of the world, a changing mm -hmm. of the guard, a changing of worldviews, a changing of ideologies is fascinating because it's the human psychology that demands that that moment be so magnified and glorious, mm -hmm. even if it's not true that it was. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yet we see... That same psychosis, if you will, mm -hmm. in George Floyd, mm -hmm. in the Watts riots, mm -hmm. in super gluing our hands to the wall in the Smithsonian or our feet to the floor. 
I don't know whose game plan that was. I promise you, Saul Alinsky does not have that in the book. I, I think, I find it interesting that they don't glue their hands to a Picasso. I just, I find that to be interesting. It's a Renoir, usually, or it's a, uh, it, it's not even a Van Gogh, right? You think it's because the artists held a worldview different than theirs? I think it's because worldview recognizes worldview coming through the rye. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> To your point about Martin Luther and nailing the 95 Theses, I was actually just listening to a, a sermon by uh, the uh, now-past uh, theologian and pastor, uh, reformed theologian and pastor, R.C. Sproul, one of the giant theologians yeah. of the 20th century. And uh, he was talking about uh, the Wittenberg Church and um, the 95 Theses and uh, Martin Luther <laughs> kind of, like you said, thumbtacking it to the, to the message board. And that's literally what it was. Uh, and that's even how he framed it. He said, but here's what happened. Other people came by, saw that thumbtack to the board, and went, we can print these off and get this going. And thanks to the Gutenberg Press, thanks, thanks, right, exactly. Thanks to thanks to my buddy Gutenberg, um, the 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 printing press, which was back then uh, the sort of the original version of email or uh, Twitter, <laughs> or Twitter. <laughs> probably a weird amalgamation of both of them for their time. Um, spread this sucker like wildfire. And if I remember right, and I, I don't remember who the theologians were, but there were others before yes. Martin Luther Correct. who had kind of proffered the same ideas yes. in very much the same way that it wasn't just one person who refused to get out of a seat on a bus. Right. There were multiples, but there was one for whom the character, the position, the relationships, the recognition, they were like, that's the one we can elevate. That's the one we can declare well, it's is, because, is the victor. Well, I've, I've often had this thought, so um, you're correct. There were multiple... Um, pastors um, and theologians in the uh, African-American church in the South going back to the beginning of Jim Crow laws um, in, right after the Civil War on up to the 1950s who could have done what Martin Luther King Jr. did. They could have. You mean from an authority and relationship and power standpoint from or from a knowledge, wisdom, and understanding standpoint? From an authority, relationship, and from a power standpoint. They had the authority, they had the relationships, they had the um, political and social heft and power and weight to be able to um, not only uh, push those types of reforms, but also to demand them from the, um, from the, southern, uh, the southern governments. And, of course, the African-American church was a political power, okay? And every politician, regardless of race, likes votes. Yes. <laughs> they like them. And they've been liking them for a long time. And, and we see that even them. now in the political and ruling class, how they... Correct. Cater to, pander to, lie to, however you want to put however it. However you want to put it. So there were people who could have said, there were pastors who could have said yes. But they didn't. Martin Luther King Jr., as flawed as he was, and he was just a man, just like anybody else, just like Martin Luther, interestingly enough, um, said yes. Yes, I will do this. Yes, I will step up. Yes, I will be the person that puts my face out there. Um, yes, I will be the one that takes the risks. This is something fundamental that I think individuals right now in our country, and this is part of that third turning, I think are beginning to get. We are now approaching 50 years of the internet. 
We're 50 years into a revolution that has created all of this right here that we are engaged in right now, this very platform that you are building, right? The platform I'm building with my podcast, um, the platform that, um, that Rumble and other places are building, right? This is our Gutenberg era. This is our Gutenberg era. We're 50 years into the Gutenberg era. Right. Okay. When you're 50 years into a revolution, you're really at the beginning of something. You're not at the end. Right. Okay. So if it would be the, the same as trying to compare uh, what we now call the United States in 1825. Uh, correct. That's right. And so when you're at the beginning of a revolution, everything is possible. And yet there's also a lot of disruption and transition. There's a ton of resistance, okay? Because who wants to go into the new thing, right? Give me a break. The old thing's been working. Why would I want to go into the new thing? The third turning, I think, that we are going to go through in this country is going to be a turning based on not necessarily the internet entirely, but the conceptualization of self that comes out of the internet. And the conceptualization. No, that's how Mark Zuckerberg would have you conceptualize it, or uh, you know, AI would have you conceptualize it. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about the the Marxist tech bros who don't care about individual human beings. I'm not talking about them. Okay, uh, they are part of the elite that, quite frankly, is going to be left behind. They just don't know it. They're dead in the water and they don't know it. I'm, I'm calling it right now. They're dead in the water. They just don't know it yet. Because here's no what's going <laughs> No submarine references. Uh, <laughs> too soon. Um, <laughs> way too soon. <laughs> so um, what's going to happen is this. And it's happening slowly and subtly. Individuals are going to discover that they are the ones who can say yes. They are the ones who can genuinely move the needle in their local communities, genuinely move the needle in their homes and in their families and their churches, genuinely move the needle in their local governments. The only system that supports that type of genuine moving of the needle, where the society, entire society does not rip apart because the fabric has been pulled and has been tensed and we've been kind of going towards this for a while is the United States. And, and the reason for that is because the Republic is not a piece of copper. Correct. It is a fabric, mm -hmm. which means as you strengthen each individual fiber, mm -hmm. you strengthen the whole thing. Absolutely. And so we have the ability to strengthen the fiber at the family level, at the relationship level, at the individual awareness and responsibility, which I think is why you and I are both called into the world of leadership, mm -hmm. albeit from completely different angles and, and approaches. But in leadership, our... I heard someone say this morning, it was what I talked about on my morning podcast, um, you can't crush the thermometer and expect the heat wave to stop. Correct. You've got to be able to be willing to look at those measurement tools that say, we're off course. Mm -hmm. And that is all about self-awareness. But self-awareness comes back to the fabric. And we can move this from a pliable silk to a durable denim or even to the fabric of a Kevlar, mm -hmm. which is really nothing more than average everyday polyester fabric but so tightly woven that it becomes bulletproof mm -hmm. and so the indestructibility and it, i like the way you put that but the indestructibility of our the fabric of our nation is built on not one uniform everybody has to be like this mm -hmm. but on the ability for each individual to strengthen themselves and therefore together become something stronger 
as a republic. Now, the only way that that works, and this is where maybe the, the poison pill is or the kryptonite is in that. Here's where the kryptonite is. And, uh, you know, I talk a lot about this on my podcast, uh, The Leadership Lessons from the Great Books, because I believe fundamentally that if we don't get our arms around this part of the kryptonite, it will kill us. The meaning crisis for individuals is tremendous right now. Right. And here's how I identify the meaning crisis. So I talked, I mentioned briefly the demon in the basement of Western culture. That's Friedrich Nietzsche. I'm going to go on record as saying I don't think Nietzsche was a genius. I think that he played an awesome game of two lies and a truth, if you read any of his work. Um, I do believe that if you are coming at it from a fundamentalist, and if, if people are watching this from a fundamentally atheistic, and nihilistic, or even an existentialist position, of course Nietzsche's nihilism matches your worldview. Because once you knock out God, uh, or, or once you even just note that God may no longer be relevant for meaning, then of course anything else can come in and fill that vacuum structure. Um, but the Which noted, could be your sexual identity. Could be could your, be, so, it could be, exactly, could be your sexual identity, identity political your, identity, racial identity, whatever. Your income level. Your, your income level, your class. Exactly, yeah. Um, how many followers you have on social media? Right, which is why we have OnlyFans making millionaires out of young people with no sense. Exactly, that's right. Because they are coming from a fundamentally Nietzschean worldview that has come to its logical end. Which is another way of saying, back to my fabric analogy, mm -hmm. if you were to take any twine and just scrape it long enough, mm -hmm. it's no longer a, a three cord strand mm -hmm. it is a singular weaker strand correct and the more you can strip away identity belonging and relationship and and i i'm anxious to hear your kryptonite my theory on what would be the kryptonite of a strength and fabric is reaching the point of individualism mm -hmm. without relationship to one another mm -hmm. uh, to get to the place where you have a whole lot of strong ropes running in one way and tiny threads going in the other, mm -hmm. uh, which does not reinforce anything because there's no common bond. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. I would also say, I would go a step further and I would say, we have to have an agreement that the common bond is um, a, a fundamentally uh, Judeo-Christian uh, uh, structure or fundamentally Judeo-Christian uh, belief system that undergirds that. Um, I'm a partisan for that. And the reason why is because, again, Christianity is the single most revolutionizing and revolutionary religion on the planet right now. It just is. Period. Full stop. The truth claims of Christianity uh, that challenge other truth claims um, and then and then overcome those other truth claims uh, is is unmatched in the history of the world. Uh, there's nothing. It's it, it's the thousand pound undefeated heavyweight. Does that mean that it doesn't take knocks? No, absolutely it takes knocks. And one of the biggest knocks that it took was in the 20th century. We tried to replace Christianity with other ideologies saying that man was going to create the more perfect scientifically organized world. Uh, that was Lenin and Stalin, which then of course led to Mao and Pol Pot, which of course then led to Saddam Hussein. Okay. Uh, then we also had the other side of that, which said, oh wait, authoritarian power is the way that we're going to go, mixed in with a little bit of uh, disgust-based and contempt-based socialism. Uh, well, that led to uh, Hitler and then of 
of course, that led to guys like Gaddafi and the Khmer Rouge and other folks that fell along that ideological that ideological mindset and those ideological lines, up to and including um, the, uh, the, the Al-Qaeda terrorists who flew two planes into the World Trade Center in 2001. They come out of an authoritarian power mindset that's fundamentally opposed to the Christian idea of love. Now, do you feel like that authoritarian mindset is political in its orientation or religious in its orientation? I think it's both. And I think, you, I think in those types of mindsets, you can't have one without the other because there's no nuanced thinking. It has to be totalitarian. That's what fundamentally makes it totalitarian. Okay, it's so totalizing. <laughs> I'm trying to remember who it was that I was listening to because their authority on the subject may have been uh, significant. I try not to listen to people who just have notions but have genuine ideas because they've done their homework. But this particular comparison said, you know, we, we hear people in the world of Christianity talk about the seven mountains idea that we should be involved in all of these different aspects. Mm-hmm. And some say, well, that's proselytizing the Christian religion into politics, into business, into marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. And his reply was, well, really it's not. It's about saying, I'm going to take the decision making that has caused me to be a moral, upstanding, hardworking, loyal, dependable a compassionate, empathetic human mm-hmm. and inculcate my job with that persona. Right. Yep. I'm going to take that into the marketplace. I'm going to take that persona into my career, my education, my church, my community, my politics, because that's the who that I am. And I can't be any other kind of who. I shouldn't abandon my who-ness, my identity, my, my self-proclamation as I move to these other aspects of life. But they said, but what about the Muslim faith? And he said, what you really need to understand is regardless of the leaders, if you will, that are identified by name, Mm -hmm. most of the time the Muslim faith is a authoritarian political framework for reshaping the culture. Right. And some identify different heroes in that faith, almost all go back to Muhammad, But Muhammad had his own, like Martin Luther and everybody else, had his own personal human issues. Uh, Ironically, his approach to the emperor has no clothes on was, uh, defy me, defile me, and I'll kill you. (laughs) That's not authoritarian at all. No. Well, and, and, you know, look, the kinds of people who sort of push back on Christianity and say, well, you know, you have to be, uh, what do you call it, Uh, 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 open to... Um, other faiths or other ideas or, um, you know, you need to turn the other cheek or something like this. It's, 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 I find it to be very interesting because here's the thing. When we're talking about ideologies, fundamentally, all ideologies proselytize. All of them. There is not one ideology on the planet that doesn't proselytize, that doesn't seek now, to expand Now, wait a minute. For you itself. to say that that's true <laughs> would mean that the Rainbow Coalition would have to proselytize. Absolutely, they do. We're here... Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> Identity, class structure, whatever you want to put in your, at the root of your ideology, you're going to proselytize about it. So my pushback to those folks, and I do this on Twitter all the time, my pushback to those folks is absolutely you're going to proselytize about your, your thing. You're going to have your identity, your conceptualization of your identity and your worldview in every single aspect of your life. And not only that, you're going to demand that I accept it and that I embrace okay, so, it. Let, let, I'm, and by the way, I'm going to do the same thing and we're going to have a conversation 
not a knockdown drag out battle. We are going to have a conversation and a debate in the marketplace of ideas. Well, and I think a lot of people would, would really love to dismiss that idea to say, I don't press my religion, my politics. and In fact, I don't even talk about them. But let me, let me make your point, because I love to take the complicated stuff and make it as simple as possible. Absolutely, bring it down the hierarchy. If you've ever purchased a car, mm-hmm. at the same time that your best friend purchased a car, or you knew they were in the market, and there's a really good chance that when you bought your car, you were convinced that of all the cars that you could afford, of all the cars that were in your budget, of all the cars that could have been bought, the one you bought was the best. You have about a thousand and one reasons why your friend, your sibling, should buy exactly the same car. Now, we count on that psychology as marketers. We call it the word of mouth. It's the most effective and most affordable form of advertising in that when you start talking about my product or service, you make me look like a hero. But the truth is, you don't care about me at all. You care about the validation that decision you made was good, was right was honorable and that everybody should agree with it. And as much as you hate that to be true, word of mouth advertising is proselytizing. Absolutely. (laughs) All of us are marketers. Yes. All of us are, quite frankly, salespeople. Um, I'm selling a worldview right now in this conversation that we're having. I'm selling it to you. I'm selling it to your listeners and to your viewers right now. Uh, And some will buy. um, Others will uh, resist and reject. And some just want to be convinced and will listen to the whole thing and then make a decision at the end. Right. When there used to be adults in the room... It's been a minute. It's been a minute. (laughs) And that's one of the other ideas that I explore. But um, in the 20th century, we had adults in the room. For as much nonsense as we had, we did have, even at the highest elite levels, we had people who would who fundamentally knew how things work. And when I think of an adult in the room that sort of is the avatar of that in the 20th century, I weirdly enough think of Harry Truman. Now the movie um, Oppenheimer is about to come out, directed by my, one of my favorite modern directors, Christopher Nolan. Love the guy. A big shout out to him. Uh, I love the idea that a director is directing on film and everybody else has gone digital. Love this, right? Um, the, the decision that Truman had to make about uh, dropping the atomic bomb not just once but twice okay, on Japan in order to bring World War II to a conclusion that decision could not have been made by anybody right now in the political or social or cultural ideological spectrum that we have here in America. Kamala Harris is incapable of making that decision. She's just fundamentally incapable of doing it. She's not fundamentally incapable of understanding what the decision is or understanding the implications of the decision. She's just fundamentally incapable of actually making the decision and then living with the consequences. That's what an adult does. An adult makes a decision. An adult says, this is the thing that I'm doing. Um, It's good that you're doing all those other things. That's cool, but this is the thing I'm doing. And there are consequences for that thing, and that's okay. I will accept them as they come along because I know where my, to go back to that fabric idea, I know where the basic thread in my fabric comes from. Uh, I know who... I know to whom I will ultimately have to answer. By the way, Truman was under no um, 
under no uh, illusions about this, okay? Um, not only was he a haberdasher, he was also um, a practicing Christian who came out of a rough childhood. The guy didn't have, you know, it wasn't all uh, strawberries and cream for the guy coming up. Right. So, like, he understood that hard decisions have hard consequences. And I'm sure he took time, he thought about it, and he said, this is the best way to end the war, and we'll live with the consequences afterward. That's an adult. In the 20th century, there were adults in the room, from corporations to families, father knows best, um, to neighborhoods, civic organizations, from the presidency all the way down to the guy running the bodega on the street corner. Even in criminal organizations, there were adults in the room. I think about the movie Goodfellas, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, there's a great scene in the movie Goodfellas directed by uh, one of my other favorite directors, Martin Scorsese, where uh, uh, Henry Hill is reflecting back um, on the 1950s when he was a kid, and uh, Big Pauly, you know, uh, comes out of the restaurant, and uh, Henry Hill, the, the, uh, the voiceover, says, you know, Big Pauly, you know, he didn't even have to, he only moved slowly because he didn't have to move at all. And the two guys are out there and they're messing with each other. You know, they're doing, they're behaving like they're children, right? right? And they're getting ready to mess up one of his nice cars. And he just walks out with that big cigar in his mouth. And he just kind of looks. And he just walks back in and everybody just sort of chills out. And then they all go back and be, oh, no, it's you. Oh, no, it's you. And they start pushing on each other again, right? Even in criminal organizations, there were adults in the room. And by the way, in a criminal organization, you know an adult says, there are things that we can do, and then there's things that we can't. This was in The Godfather. Right. Godfather didn't want to get into drugs. Why didn't Godfather want to get into drugs? Because the politicians who like us might not support us anymore. Well, and believe it or not, they even had a, a downstream long-term effect uh, accountability. Bingo. Even in themselves, even in criminality, even criminality, there, there's no long-term benefit of this. Yeah, there's a bunch of cash right now, but good grief, what happens to the society that we live in if we continue right. down this? Which was why there were adults in the room to say, uh, "You can't behave like that in this family." That's right. You can't behave like that, and you're ashamed to this family. And there's a, a dual contrast that I see in this. On the one hand, I see. We have gone away from respect and authority because of patriarchy. patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And because we fear the patriarchy, we have to abandon all things that look like a father making a decision, an adult in the room. We have to come to the place where all the children get to make all the decisions. And the other side of that is, while the children are making decisions, we understand that the brain doesn't until 25 years old actually have a prefrontal cortex, i.e. can't make that decision of we won't sell drugs even though it makes a lot of money now because long term, that's disastrous. Instead, they say, what pleases me now, what feels good now, what emotionally will I do right now because that's what I want to do right now. And so all of the decisions are made not with an adult pattern of thinking that says, what are the moral consequences? What is the right? What is the wrong? Where does this come from? What is the origin? The patriarchal idea was, wait till your father gets home. Right. There will be consequences. There will be a price to be paid for your silliness. And, and we've abandoned that out of the fear of being ruled by a patriarchy. Well, the thing is, and, you know, uh, the Reformed theologian Doug Wilson would say this, or it would be so what other folks who are in that space working right now and writing right now, um, they would say this, and it is a good point. You're going to have a patriarchy. That's the structure, the fundamental structure of reality itself. So, you know, if you're a tech bro, God bless you, you're coming up with the metaverse and AI, you're not going to change the fundamental structure of reality. Lions just, have won. 
gorillas have one. You, right. You just if it's a living sorry. creature, there's a there's a hierarchy, there's and it's hierarchy. most likely a patriarch. And, and there's a dude at the top. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, ladies, but I mean, there's a dude at the top. Like that's just kind of how it goes. And if you believe like, Jordan Peterson for two thousand plus years, even the lobsters. Yeah, there, there, there you go. That's right. <laughs> I do not yet have a lobster t-shirt. I, I do not yet either. Um, I'm kind of holding off on that for a little bit. I'm waiting for Jordan to to come along a little bit further down the road towards the cross a little bit. Um, he is not far from it yet, I believe. Not, not far. Um, but um, but that idea of a patriarchy, that concept of patriarchal rule as a fundamental piece of reality, a fundamental piece of how reality is structured, it cannot be abrogated and cannot be moved because it was not created by man. And it can, thus it cannot be removed by man. Okay. Well, then the only question after that to answer is, what kind of patriarchy are you going to have? Are you going to have a patriarchy based off of, uh, the, the, the modern term is beta males. I don't really like that term. But are you going to have, a, are you going to have it based off of, you know, the sort of um, authoritarian, rigid power structure? Or are you going to have it based off of a confused... Uh, weak power structure that is seeking to go into, interestingly enough, female spaces and become female bodies. You're going to have a patriarchy. Period. Full stop. It is no surprise to me that men who are confused are seeking to compete in women's sports. That's not a shock. Because right. when you can come in number one by being a dude, let's just be real about it. I played sports for many, many years. I've done combat sports. Trust me, I know how testosterone works. Uh, if you're going to come in and you're going to be a dude at the top of like the women's sport because you were not that good at the bottom of the men's sport, that's patriarchy. That's It's raw and it's right there in front of your face. It's fundamental to reality. You're going to have one. The issue is what kind of patriarchy are you going to have? What kind of patriarchs are you going to have? What kind of adults are you going to have? We have abandoned that idea because we've abandoned the idea of meaning. This goes back to that. We've said in a nihilistic way, uh, nothing matters, it doesn't matter, everything's going to erode and, and fall apart anyway. This is our Darwinian origin of the species idea. Everything's going to erode, there is no meaning, so we can just do what we want with, without consequence. Except here's the thing. Life is long and consequences show up. And they don't ask for permission. They do not. They get a vote. Uh, Jocko Willick, uh, the great Navy SEAL and uh, host of the Jocko podcast, says this, the enemy gets a vote. Uh, he should know he was a 20-year Navy SEAL. I agree with that. Your consequences get a vote. They get a vote in your life, whether you like it or not. Irrelevant uh, are your emotions. Uh, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. So if you decide, let's make this very, very practical. If you decide to not behave like an adult and instead decide to go out and to engage in sexual relations, or I'll use the OnlyFans example that you just mentioned. If you decide to sell your body on OnlyFans, and you are selling your body, if you decide to do that, then don't be surprised when the consequence is that you know maybe 60 million dudes have seen you naked on OnlyFans or seen you teasing on OnlyFans, and now you can't get a date. Or find a, a worthwhile husband right. 20 years let, from now. Yeah, let's not be shocked. Let's not pretend to be surprised. You were not behaving as an adult. You were behaving as a child. 
you're behaving in a childlike fashion. By the way, men can behave in a childlike fashion. Women can behave in a childlike fashion. Yeah. Uh, and there are children who can be behave like adults <laughs> of both genders better than most adults because they understand consequences and accountability. We need to go back to having adults in the room. And, and my, my concern, one of my bigger concerns, is that just based on the generational numbers, just purely based on demographic data alone, the people who were oriented, the baby boomer generation, who were maybe more oriented towards being the adults in the room um, and did so quite successfully for the majority of their cultural and social uh, existence are now leaving. They're now exiting the stage. The generation that's coming behind them, I'm on the tail end, I'm on the youngest end of that, of that next generation, the Gen Xers, there just aren't enough of us demographically to be adults. But we're the ones that it's gonna fall on. If you're between 45 and 59, sorry. If you're watching this right now on Rumble, if you're watching it uh, wherever else you're, taking, you're, you're consuming this, 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 uh, this conversation, uh, congratulations, you're the adult in the room. Look around, you're the one. Uh, the millennials are kind of sort of coming along. There's sort of been a shift in that generation, um, and it, start, it usually starts with home ownership. And so there's been a shift in that generation where they're, they're finally starting to go, oh, oh, oh. Oh crap! There's no more adults. I'm I'm the one now. I got to go get these skills. Now I got to go get this understanding. And then of course you got Gen Z. I have a number. I have a, a couple of kids who are in that Gen Z generation. Fortunately, the Gen Z folks have been raised by the Gen Xers, so we're going to skip some some yeah. interesting things there. They're going to learn how to be adults in the room, and some of them are already making adult decisions and behaving in that fashion. That's kind of yeah. a throwback to something that we may be missing. Yeah, many of them are fans of Charlie Kirk. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is an interesting, um, I won't say paradox, but it's an interesting observation to see that age group and that mindset. Yep. And some of them are in colleges and some are like, why am I bothering to, to exactly. get this degree? Why am I spending the money on it? Um, but then you've got people like Jordan Peterson, mm -hmm. uh, who would definitely be in the, uh, the boomer or Gen X. Yeah, he's right on that line. Yeah. In that category. Uh, but his way of seeing the world and his training and his education, you know, I... I, I am a father and a grandfather, and in the grandfather category, we have 10. Mm -hmm. And so they range from, thank you, <laughs> from months old to 16 and now has a driver's license and, you know, doing all the things. Uh, but the tyranny of the two-year-old mm -hmm. is not a forgotten phase. Oh, no. And when you talk about the adult in the room, I, I remember Jordan Peterson just recently was talking about a particular uprising of um, the heckler's veto. Mm. You know, the, the outlandishly loud, arrogant, opinionated, uneducated, uninformed uh, backlash mm -hmm. that if I can scream loud enough, you'll stop talking. Mm -hmm. um, nonsensical. Mm -hmm. And its own form of tyranny, its own form of, yep. of Antifa fascism, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, but he, he pointed out the fact that really what we're talking about is the, the tyrant that is the two-year-old, the two-year-old tyranny. Mm -hmm. um, there's no real understanding there. No. It's just how I feel Correct. right now. Yeah. And I'm going to impose my feelings on you by acting a fool until you submit. Correct. And that is a frightening reality that our world must deal with right now as we come through this phase. 
And, and it's really the, the heart behind Lead the Narrative is asking that question. And now that we've identified some of the common narratives, the Communist Manifesto, uh, the socialism ideologies, even Nazi Germany, what we've seen in the 21st century has been phenomenal mm -hmm. in its psychological and cultural impact. Mm -hmm. And some of that, some of that we have to agree with and go, okay, there were some really revolutionary ideas that, mm -hmm. that they were worthwhile. The civil mm -hmm. rights movement, for an example. Sure. Uh, some of the, the changes in religion and, you know, for what it's worth. Just that one little, was it late 80s, mid, mid to late 80s, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls to mm -hmm. say, you know, we've been basing our thoughts and religions on everything from the canon of scripture through um, the Subtuagent built on what we knew prior. Mm -hmm. But now that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we actually have documents older mm -hmm. which would indicate more accuracy to the historical moment mm -hmm. than we've ever had before. Mm -hmm. And they cause us to reevaluate some of the things we're looking on right now. Mm -hmm. From a, I don't think there is such a thing as an a-religious, but outside the scope of Christianity as a religion, uh, we've got the pyramids. Mm -hmm. We still cannot technologically explain today how that happened. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you commissioned a team to do that today, it would be billions of dollars and multiple decades to accomplish what was accomplished whenever, however, it was done then. Mm -hmm. Which leads me to believe that someone knows through the historicity of humanity that they've been pulling apart that fiber mm -hmm. until it frays, until it becomes weak almost like a complete reset mm -hmm. to say, okay, well, the pyramids of, of Sub-Sahara are not the only ones. Mm -hmm. The ones in Egypt are matched by some in South America mm -hmm. and some found in Africa. Mm -hmm. And you have to look at those and go, well, how'd they get there? Mm -hmm. And some of those questions we have to ask and mm -hmm. some of them we have to look at and go, it would be nice to know, but it might be irrelevant. Right. Because ultimately my job is to strengthen the fiber that I represent mm -hmm. and strengthen the fiber of my family mm -hmm. so that we together become a stronger part of the fabric of what keeps what I believe to be the greatest country on earth in its place because it has been the stalwart against some of the worst tyrannies in the world. Mm -hmm. It's been the stalwart against wars that have tried to crop up. It has been the provider for those who are in need from a financial assistance to medical assistance to food to uh, inventions all over the world. Yes, it has also done some really, really stupid and horrendous things. Mm -hmm. and not just in slavery, but even in modernity, we have to look at some of the stupid things that have been done, some strictly for profit and some strictly for politics. But generally speaking, in the grand scheme of things, there has never been a nation on earth that has brought as much good to the world mm -hmm. as a whole as the USA has. Lead the Narrative has been a call to me to say, now that we recognize all these stories, communism, Marxism, socialism, different religions, all of them, they all have their own narrative. The Rainbow Coalition has its own narrative. Right, wrong, or otherwise, it is a narrative. It is a collection of stories that bring together an idea that causes a change in behavior culturally and socially. Mm -hmm. We identify them all. What we seem to be missing is, if those are not successful, if they won't do the work of saving our nature, saving our the nation that we live in, mm -hmm. the globe that we live on, mm -hmm. 
then what story should we be telling? What stories do we need to make the frontline conversation to rebuild the fabric of society? That is a great question. <clears throat> I think that is a question that is probably as complicated as the entire conversation we've been having. <laughs> and so I don't want to give it short shrift by, um, by making it simple, making an answer that's simple or that sounds easy. Um, I want to acknowledge the complication and the nuance inside of that question. And I want to offer a few suggestions. So maybe just something to throw into the kitty to think about. I'm going to start with the idea of deglobalization. I'm going to begin with that concept. So I think that's part of the answer to your question. I'm a, I'm a reader, not necessarily a fan, but a reader of um, the geopolitical strategist uh, who follows demography and talks about how demographics and just people numbers influence the growth or the retraction of economies and civilizational structures. A guy named Peter Zeehan. Uh, you can check him out. You can Google him. Z-E-I-H-A-N. Peter Zeehan. And what he talks about, he's written about three or four books. And what he talks about is how just the number of people that are on the planet, okay, in our various country, our various nation-state structures, how those demographics then influence politics, economics, culture, and sociology, right? The direction of where globalization or deglobalization might be going. So for instance, he predicted the war that Russia is currently engaged in in the Ukraine. Uh, it came as no surprise to him because he said basically Russia is going to turn into a retirement home. They're already past demographic demise. Uh, he is China is too from correct. He's from predicting China's demise yeah. as well, which is why China is becoming, which is why <coughs> Xi is collecting, has continued to collect more and more power in an authoritarian structure, and thus there are not competent people who can deal with, let's say, Janet Yellen <laughs> when she goes to talk to somebody. There's just no one to talk to, or the EU when they send a delegation to China. There's just no one to deal with them because Xi has consolidated all the power because he is watching China go off the demographic cliff. Numbers don't lie. You talked about the two-year-old tyranny. Well, here's the thing that stops the two-year-old tyranny. One plus one is two, and that's it. It doesn't matter if you have an emotional breakdown about it. But you could put a label on a scorpion and call it a bunny. Yeah, you could do that. But it's still a scorpion. <laughs> and it's still going to sting you because <laughs> that's in its nature. <laughs> and this is the thing with demographic collapse, which, by the way, has been occurring as a result of globalization. This is Zeehan's thesis. Has been occurring as a result of globalization uh, over the course of the last uh, 40 to 50 years since the Bretton Woods Agreement. And now we are in a position, because there just aren't enough people uh, in the vast majority of countries on the planet where basically the planet is going to go into aging, an aging structure over the course of the next 100 to 200 years. And the country that is the least or that is the most furthest back on this aging cycle, guess what? It's the United States of America. Most available resources, two lakes that surround us that are really hard to force project across, particularly if you don't have people. China can barely force project across the Taiwan Strait, forget getting across the Pacific Ocean. And Russia can barely handle a war they should have wrapped up in six months. Or weeks. Right. right. Because of people on the ground. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm pro-Russia or anti-Ukraine or, or pro-Ukraine and anti-Russia. This also doesn't mean that I'm pro-China or anti-China. I'm merely talking about demographic realities, okay? 
When we think about those realities, and when we think about how those realities are structured, then deglobalization begins to make more sense. And deglobalization is basically the system of America come home, right? right. That is going to help us become not only more self-sufficient, but it's also going to encourage us to begin to build out structures in the North American sphere with Canada and Mexico following along behind us that are going to keep us as a relevant country, at least at a fundamental material level, for quite some time. Now, how does that work when you look at, I, I guess the right word is cultural dilution. Sure. So you've got a demographic reality. If you're just looking at age, earning power, fighting age males, reproductive age, sure. um, the structural, teachable, trainable, coachable mm -hmm. next generation of growth. Yep. Um, there's a tension, though, that says, I remember when the Syrians, for an example, were coming into Germany yep. uh, during the Iraq-Iran war and before the Afghani dialed down. And... When the rape culture was on the rise all across Europe and the European Union, and they were literally basically just doing away with borders, uh, there was a video where a bunch of men, fighting age men, were storming the 12-foot fences with barbed wire at the top outside the airport mm -hmm. in Munich. And they crashed through the fence, and they were just running wild like... Like wild teenagers when school is let out mm -hmm. through the streets, groping people, fighting people, beating people, etc. Sure. And one of them that appeared to be a, an influencer in the crowd was asked by a news reporter, how long do you think it will take people like this to uh, acclimate? Yeah. And she said, you know, we, we would assume that you will assimilate to the German culture. And he said, lady, you got it all wrong. He said, we don't intend to assimilate or to acclimate. We are our own, our own culture. And he said, here's the thing that you misunderstand. The German family has on average 1.2 children, the ones that you don't abort. Yep. We have four wives and nine or ten children. Yep. In two generations, there won't be a German to be found. Yep. As we look at this, as Mallorcas says, not illegal immigration, but unusual migration. <laughs> some of that migration is forced migration, some is coerced migration, some is bribed migration. Sure. Some of it, like all over the EU, it's an intentional moving and shifting and diluting of cultures and ideologies. And I, I don't for a moment think there's no intention behind the open border in the US in this season. Sure when you look at the globalist worldview, that if we can dilute that Christian foundation, if we can dilute that culture, then it's a whole lot easier to defeat because they don't have people willing to fight for what they never experienced. The problem is that the the people who are in favor of the, di the cultural dilution and are coming at it from the the oppose and by the way, the, the people who are coming at this from the opposing idea, the Yuval, you know, the Yuval Noah Harari folks, right, right. Uh, who are opposed to, to Zihan, right? They're in the opposite ideological direction, or, or, or they're at the opposite of the, the ideological continuum, let's say, on on demography and uh, deglobalization. Of course, they look at this as a net good because one mass of human beings is the same as just another mass of human beings, and they don't care because it's they're, all useless, they're all useless eaters anyway, right? Except. Here's the problem. The useless eaters get a vote. Back to what we were saying before. and Your consequences the, get a vote. That's right. And so when you engage in open borders, um, and when you engage in that, in that 
policy, right, or when you passively allow that policy to happen, yeah, you're going to get in criminals and gangs, narco-terrorists, you're going to get all the bad elements, absolutely. Uh, child sex trafficking, human trafficking, you're going to get all of that, for sure. You're going to get 5,000 uh, 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 immigrants, guests. Uh, hotel guests, right, <laughs> in, New York, in New York City, in a formerly $500 a night you know, uh, hotel, in $500 room a night hotel room in New York. Um, you're going to get all of that. Here's the thing, though. And this is why you got to bet on America. At the end of the day, and I've known immigrants who have come here both legally and otherwise, and here's the thing. The first generation who comes here, for sure, they hold on. The second generation, though, you know what they want? They want what they see on Instagram. They want the promise of the 20th century. They want the family structure in the suburban neighborhood with the nice house. And do you know what that first generation tells them? That first generation tells them you have to hold on to your culture, but you also have to go get that. So now there's a natural tension that's built in. You know why those kids in that New York City hotel don't have any parental structure? They don't have any parental structure because the adults are off chasing, guess what? The American dream. Bingo. Some of those kids are gonna become criminals, for sure. Some of those kids are going to become wastrels or are going to go on to um, the, um, the social services roles and are going to fall off the table, absolutely for sure. But the vast majority of those, those kids, the 51% of those kids, guess what they're going to do? They're going to go get some skills. They're going to learn how to lay brick or they're going to learn how to turn a lathe or they're going to learn how to speak English and they are going to pursue the American dream. We can still sell it. Even at this point in the Republic, we can still sell it. And here's how I know we can still sell it. And I'm going to give you a small anecdote here. Uh, I moved to Texas uh, in, uh, in 2020, and I had a uh, part of the Great American Migration. And uh, I had a pool put in my backyard. And the individual who put in my pool um, is uh, originally, his, his father was from Mexico, right? So his father immigrated here from Mexico. Uh, we were talking about this. And, um, and uh, when he immigrated from Mexico, his father knew no English, right? And started out, I think, working in landscaping or something like that. Anyway, so taught his son how to put in pools, right? Taught his son how to put in irrigation, taught his son how to do all that. Son now owns an irrigation and landscaping business. And I know because I paid that guy a lot of money. <laughs> By the was way, that guy, it was not cheap. And that guy speaks better English than I do. His kids live on a ranch. He has multiple, he has multiple children. His kids live on a ranch with horses and cows and chickens and ducks. He's living the American dream. And do you know who he hires? He hires people who come across the border from Mexico. He gives them jobs. He's like, I don't want them just sitting on my couch. I don't want them just hanging out. I don't need, uh, every, every ethnic group in America has what I call a cousin Ray Ray problem. Right. <laughs> you know, the guy who shows up to your house and you let him hang around for two weeks eating your food and then you're like, no, you gotta get up and gotta go get a job. <laughs> every ethnic group has that. Well, guess what? When you open the borders, you're letting in all the cousin Ray Rays. Yeah. And everybody who's made it, going back to the first wave of immigration, going back to the 1960s, that was allowed in underneath the auspices of Ted Kennedy, and then was made legal, that entire generation, they haven't even hit 70 or 80 yet. They're still influential. And do you know what they're telling their kids and their grandkids? You need to become Americans. 
you need to invest in the American dream. That is still happening. Look, the battles today are about what kind of American we are going to have, regardless of what the globalists say. So they are going to say their things and they are going to do their things, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, the, dem the demographic numbers and the immigration numbers just work better in our favor. And then there's the cultural assimilation aspects that work better for us. So that's, that's our second sort of uh, benefit that we have. The third one is, and this is really interesting, we don't tie identity to language. So in Germany, uh, France is currently, uh, as of this recording of this, uh, being broken apart by racial riots because, quite frankly, um, if you speak French, it doesn't make you French. The French have never really gotten their arms around that as far as national cultural identity goes, uh, nor have the Germans. And the, the, in your anecdote, uh, that, that, that individual was exactly correct in talking to that German. You're going to weed yourself out of existence, right? Um, because you don't have the cultural confidence to move forward. Well, guess what? In America, we've always been a mix of people <laughs> that don't look like each other. <laughs> That's the thing. And so when you're in a mix of people that don't look like each other, don't worship, worship like each other, and didn't come from the same original language, and had to vote with their feet to get here, those dynamics still matter. The immigrant trains coming up from Central America, they had to vote with their feet. They had to walk. They had to get on a train. They had to walk through Mexico. They had to decide they wanted it. They had to decide they wanted it. That's huge. That's gigantic. And so once you have those kinds of things, those kinds of uh, dynamics working for you, in addition to having a language that is English, no longer do we sort of go on and on about should this be the official language. We, we've kind of moved on from that. I remember those arguments were happening in the 1990s and in the early, the early 2000s. We've moved on from that. Uh, we just speak English here, and you're going to speak English, and that's just it. Well, so we've got the one language, but we've got this assimilation of people who are committed to a creed. They are committed to a national creed. So we can argue about a creed all day while we're also chasing our American dream. And we will do that successfully, I think. Well, and I think the reality of it is, too, you know, whether you look on the playground or, you know, you put 10 10-year-olds or 2-year-olds in a room, mm -hmm. 10 2-year-olds in a room with no adult in the room, eventually lawlessness, the tyranny of the 2-year-old, the, the screaming and the, the yelling to get my way, will come to an end. Oh yeah, Lord of the Flies will break out. And so th even as we look at the uh, rampant migrations mm -hmm. uh, all across the world, mm -hmm. the one thing that America has always held onto is a soul that is unspeakable. Correct. And it's a soul that is also unspoken. Correct. There's something about being here geographically. It's, that, the, it's the lakes. It's the Atlantic. <laughs> I think it is. I think it's the lakes. Because look, um, I, my, my, my wife loves oceans. She loves water. That's why I have a pool in my backyard. She loves swimming. All my kids are swimmers. Da, 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 da. I tolerate water. It's fine. I take baths. It's fine. <laughs> ah, showers. I'm a shower guy. <laughs> Holds me off from a distance and let me go. Um, the psychology of that is under, you, people underestimate that massively. Um, I actually just went and visited some family that live in Hawaii and uh, never been out there before, uh, went there. And, you know, I knew conceptually in my head it's like a six-hour flight from L.A., but then it's a six-hour flight from L.A. And you just get there and you just realize, oh, wait, like, this is the middle of the Pacific Ocean. 
like there's no help coming. If something happens here, you better figure it out. Like when they thought they were under nuclear threat? At bingo. And they were putting like their kids into underneath manhole covers and trying to get in duck underneath cars and things like that because there's no help coming. That's an island. The United States, uh, the, the, the fact that we have spread across a third of a continent, the fact that our nearest near-peer competitor in terms of a deep water navy is Japan. Not China, Japan. That's our nearest near-peer competitor. Our next nearest near competitor in terms of military spending is China, and they spend 400 times less than we do. We're giving our cast-off surplus to the Ukrainians to test against the Russians to see if that stuff still works. By the way, cast-off surplus from the 80s and 90s. Things we which didn't is now in the hands of the Iranians, apparently. Right, which we didn't even use in Iraq or Afghanistan. We used all the modern stuff there, and we're making even better stuff. And then here's the thing. Let me talk about the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, because I can hear some of your listeners screaming about foreign, foreign wars and all this, and no blood for oil. I remember that. I can hear all of this. Let me address those very sort of uh, Bernie Sanders-type voices in the room, because I know they listen to you. The fact of the matter is, you may not like war, and I don't like war, and I don't want anybody to go to war. Uh, I, I, war is a terrible thing and I don't minimize it. Um, I don't minimize what you have to do in war. I don't minimize the death that war creates, uh, nor do I minimize the psychological impact that war has. It is the most massively destructive thing that human beings can do to each other. And there's a very specific type of education that you get from fighting a war for 20 years. That you cannot get anywhere else. Or any other way. That's it. Our next nearest peer competitor is Russia. And the last battalion commander that they had that was still operating, I believe, in the Ukraine last fought in the Chechen War in like the 1990s. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, Russia just recently nearly lost a coup to a pizza guy. Correct. So, I mean, at the and same by the way, those are their best trained guys, the, the guys who were in the coup. Those were their best, that, that was their version of their of, of, of uh, special forces. Blackwater. Uh, correct, yeah. So it, it really is fascinating, though, when you, when you look at the evolution of our society, where we're going, what's next, how do we learn, how do we communicate. Um, choosing your friends wisely mm -hmm. becomes a really, really big deal. Mm -hmm. I was, in, uh, was meeting a client in NRH last week and sitting there at the Black Rifle Coffee Company, mm -hmm. waiting to go see my, my client. And this young man walks in, he's sitting behind me, uh, black slacks and a white t-shirt, mm -hmm. no dress shirt on. He's got his laptop out there, he's you know getting busy on whatever it is that he's doing, but he's drinking this excess energy drink. Mm -hmm. And I recognize it because my son buys oodles and gobs of that stuff. If you've ever seen it, you know what I'm talking about and where it comes from. And so I ask him, you know, do you, do you like that drink? Uh, are you in the business? He said, I am. And I said, what do you think? And he said, I think I live with my aunt right now. I came here from Uganda. My mother is still in Liberia waiting for a passport or a visa to come. And so I got to find some way to make it. And this is an opportunity that supplements my job and allows me to meet people and connect with people and build relationships with people. Um, that you can't do in my country. 
And I thought, you know, if you're 20 years old and you're coming to America and you're joining a network marketing firm because it's opportunity outside the norm, mm-hmm. um, you're well ahead of the college graduate whining about whatever snowflake issue they're whining about this week. That's correct. And I, I think from a cultural standpoint, um, the comment was made, it was attributed to our former president, and he said, you know, they're not sending us their best and their brightest, they're sending us the dregs of the earth. They're criminals and they're, and they're uh, rapists and thugs. <sighs> uh, probably not the wisest way to articulate <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it, but um, it is historically accurate that when Fidel Castro took over Cuba, mm-hmm. he intentionally opened the doors to the insane asylums and provided boats. Correct, yep. And he sent them to Florida and all along the Texas and uh, all along the Gulf Coast. All along the Gulf Coast, yeah. To get them out of Cuba and in his hope to infect mm-hmm. the population of the U.S. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you partner that notion with the, what is the right way to say it? Conspiracy theory, I guess, is the only way to say it. <laughs> uh, of the mad American diet, the modern American diet. Mm-hmm. I've, I've studied that with uh, Daniel Amen and Bruce Lipton and Caroline Leaf. Actually has an entire book about uh, eat and think yourself smart. Yep. And in it she says, you know, there are things in the American diet that are commonplace to be sold over the counter here. Mm-hmm. Things that you find in your cheese, in your bread, and I mean, the list goes on and on. The pesticides that are being sprayed on your fruit to keep them shiny and to mm-hmm. buy them. If you take all of those things and compare them to other countries, other countries don't have them. Mm-hmm. Fluoride in the water, for an example. Mm-hmm. Some people say, well, it's great for your teeth. Um, 60 years ago, that was believed to be true. 20 mm-hmm. years ago, that was believed to be Five years ago, my dentist said, you must drink a lot of bottled water because I don't see the effects of fluoride on your teeth. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're right. Mm-hmm. I avoid it because I know what it does to the human brain. And he's like, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. Thank you, doctor. You should do some more research. But the reality is we've found that for the last two generations at least, mm-hmm. the American diet, the American pharmaceutical industry has hamstrung the intellectual capacity mm-hmm. and even the relational, rational, emotional mind capacity of many of our young people. Mm-hmm. And so this migration mm-hmm. kind of has that Lord of the Flies effect on those young people when they get into college and they're thinking, you know, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Thomas Sowell said when he got his undergrad degree and his first graduate degree, he was a Marxist. Mm-hmm. Yep. Until he got into his first job and it was the practical application of the Marxist ideology that caused him to go, that will never work. Right. And by the time he got his PhDs, Mm-hmm. He was willing to say, not only is it a bad idea, let me tell you how bad that idea is. Right. And I think there's some practical application, whether you're putting pools in the ground or you're hiring people who are willing to do that work, mm-hmm. of looking at someone who's saying, I've got the fortitude. Mm-hmm. I've got the, the wherewithal. Mm-hmm. I've, got, I've got the passion for life enough to say, I will fight for this because it's good and it's right. Mm-hmm. Whether anybody agrees with me or not, uh, I heard Andrew Tate recently say, and he's an interesting cat all on his own, hmm. but he said, uh, I have a circle of friends that I run with. Not all of them are world champion kickboxers like me and my brother. 
In fact, some of them couldn't fight their way out of a wet paper bag. He said, I never judge a man on his ability to fight, but I absolutely judge him on his willingness. If you're unable to fight, we got your back. If you're unwilling to fight, you don't belong in our circle. Mm -hmm. I won't be in public with a man who is unwilling to defend himself, defend his friends, or defend his honor. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that, that kind of misogynistic patriarchy <laughs> is what every man, every woman wants in a husband, mm -hmm. every child wants in a father, every citizen wants in a leader, and every man wants in a friend. Mm -hmm. Is that willingness to say, I don't, always, I don't always agree with you, and sometimes we might disagree vehemently, mm -hmm. but I will always stand up for your right to say, to do, to be who you are, and I will fight anybody who's willing to take that right from you. Mm -hmm. The subway. Mm -hmm. Um, the chokehold that ended in, in a death. Mm -hmm. How many people had their cell phones out but did nothing? Yep. How many people, though, did get engaged, but they weren't the one who actually applied the pressure mm -hmm. that, that caused the demise? The number of people coming to the defense of a crazed homicidal maniac who was willing to assault, if I remember right, 48 previous assault charges, mm -hmm. Uh, who was willing to assault other people of all ages, mm -hmm. had no care, concern for humanity. And yet, people want to defend him mm -hmm. solely based on skin color. And I just wonder if the skin colors were reversed, would the reaction be the same? Mm -hmm. And we're back to the Lord of the Flies thing again, right? We're asking ourselves, how do we self-govern? How do we self-legislate? How do we allow the behavior of the out of control to be brought in control without government policy or law enforcement or guns and badges just that social pressure stop acting like a fool fool mm -hmm. this is why at the end of the day i think freedom of speech freedom of association uh all of which stem from the freedom to practice religion as you see fit right these things that are enshrined in our Bill of Rights as part well, we of our We can make that more common language today, right? You do you, boo. Do you, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> these kinds of things I'm a partisan for. Um, I'm a partisan for speech that I don't agree with. I, I need you to say objectionable things. I need you to be able to say things that I may disagree with or that I might find to be a little bit off kilter or that I might find to be a little bit suspect. Uh, I need those ideas, those thoughts, not to, um, not to hide in the dark like a mushroom and just grow. I need them to be exposed to the light. One of the interesting things that we see in our culture, and one of the big critiques against America, is that, particularly by Canadians, interestingly enough, is that they've got a yelling, screaming thing, going riot going on in their basement at any given point in time. <laughs> and here's what I tell them, and I would tell this to anybody watching this show. There's about 315 million people in this country. At any given point in time, even during an election year, which one is coming up next year, only about 20% of, of that 315 million are actively paying attention to anything political or cultural. Or anything at all. Or any, well... Chinos, Doritos, and porn. Right, right. Well, well, actually, that goes with the other 80%. But um, <laughs> I, think of, uh, I think of the Big Lebowski <laughs> back in the day. Um, 
But you know, the other 80% of those folks, you know what they're doing? They're like the guy from Uganda in the Black Rifle uh, in the Black Rifle Coffee Company, um, you know, uh, restaurant, right? Um, who's 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 getting out there and getting after it? The kinds of people that I train in my um, leadership development work, right? These are people who they don't know the president of the United States, they don't even know the mayor of the town or city they live in, and they don't care. You know what they care about? They care about their job, or they care about their family. Their string in the fabric. Their string in the fabric, correct. They care, if you if you push them to sort of broaden their horizons a little bit, uh, sort of expand the, uh, expand the blinders, they care about uh, the church that they may belong that they may belong to, and, and still a vast majority of people, interestingly enough, do go to church. What they feel in their hearts—that's a different thing altogether. And how they actually practice and walk that out—that's another issue for another day. But they are showing their bodies are showing up in that building uh, at least two two Sundays a month. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that that's a lot. I would love to see it before Sundays a month. <laughs> I would love to see tithing increase, right? I would love to see all these things. But the fact of the matter is, people are focused on those things. People are focused on um, their own amusements and their own ideas. I often say, I don't know what people are doing on the internet. I'm doing all kinds of different things on the internet. But apparently, like you said, people are looking at porn and Cheetos and Doritos, right? And I have no idea what people are doing on the internet. COVID actually really sort of brought this home for me um, because I use the internet to, you know, try to sort of rebuild my business. Other people were using the internet to go on Instagram. I was like, what are you, or watch Netflix. I'm like, okay, what are you doing? But these kinds of concepts that we've been talking about, the meaning of the country, immigration, uh, racial issues, discrimination, patriarchy, um, meaning, messaging, the kinds of things that we've covered in this conversation, uh, deglobalization, uh, the elites and sort of uh, the way that they think, World Economic Forum, conspiracy theories, the kinds of things we've kind of touched on here. These are things that are becoming more uh, the people are, are becoming more exposed to in that 80%, but it's still not 50% of that 80%. You still have a good chunk of people who don't care about any of that. Probably 3 or 4%. Right. You have a good chunk of people that don't care about any of that. You know what those chunk of people want? And it's not really hard to understand. This is why I talked about adults in the room. They want the system, which for them means the country, to work. To do its job. To do its job. I do not think that that is a bad, nor do I think that that is a venal desire. I actually think that's a common human one. Um, when you look back at the Roman Empire, uh, from Republic to Empire, which we're often compared to, we're often compared to the Roman, the Roman Empire, which I think is a faulty comparison in many different kinds of ways. But the, the biggest difference that you see between the United States and between, between us and the, and the Roman Empire is the Roman Empire started falling apart not when the senators were knifing each other in, in, on, the, on the Senate floor. That's not when it started happening. It's not even when it started happening when the Caesars started naming their horses. It wasn't even that. <laughs> okay, uh, and appointing them to, to governmental posts. It wasn't with the orgies and everything else. That all stuff happened at the elite levels. Rome started falling apart when the guy who was bringing in grapes from his farm on the Apian Way at night and had done so for three generations 
finally got to the point where he stopped bringing grapes in on the Apian Way at night. Because everybody, if you know anything about the Roman Empire, they would bring in all of their shipments at night because during the day, um, Rome hot. was too hot and it was too busy and whatever. So like three o'clock in the morning, you'd have deliveries coming in. Think of the guy who drives the 18-wheeler up to the restaurant, um, making seven bucks an hour to drive the 18-wheeler um, in, in a modern American context. Well, that guy, after about three generations, stopped showing up. And it was harder and harder to get people to show up to do that to bring in grapes on the Apian Way. That's when the Roman Empire started to fall apart. You mean like right now where you can go to Taco Bell and order from the little machine and you can't even get a cup? I mean, you still have people delivering, driving the 18-wheelers that have the cups packed in that are going into that machine. You still have that guy showing up. That guy still showing up for 20 bucks an hour. That guy's still unloading those cups. Yeah, they get shoved into the machine and yes, it would be nice to have a clerk there to actually give you an actual cup. But at the end of the day, the guy driving it is still showing up. So what happens when universal basic income and electric cars and automated driving and robotic deliveries mm -hmm. replace that guy? What happens to the fabric of culture then? Because of, and this is where then deglobalization comes back in, because of deindustrialization, here's what's going to happen. A lot of, or not deindustrialization, but reindustrialization. A lot of what's going to happen there is that guy is going to move up the chain of value, not down the chain of value. So you talk about universal basic income. I'm glad you brought that up. Every experiment that has been tried with universal basic income, including the most recent one that I think is being done somewhere in the Northeast currently, I can't remember if it's Vermont, some states trying to pull it off, yeah. has failed miserably. And no one ever asks the question why. By the way, well, it might have a direct relationship to meaning. Bingo. Universal basic income tends to work in populations that are homogenous, either racially, culturally, socially, religiously homogenous, with very few rifts or differences, and that tend to trend a little bit towards um, not necessarily socialism, but towards being capitalistic with a massive welfare state already stacked on top of it. Case in point, uh, think of Sweden. Universal yeah, basic Sweden, income works Sweden there. Sweden and Denmark both said, don't call us socialism, we're much more a capitalist society. That's right. We just have a massive welfare state. Uh, I believe uh, Glenn Beck's made this point multiple times, right? right? And, and it is a relevant one. But in the United States, that doesn't work here. And it doesn't work here because here's the thing. The person takes the universal basic income and they're still hustling to do something else. Because UBI is not enough. Not only is UBI not enough, but UBI provides no, and you said the word, the M word, meaning. We saw this during COVID. The number of people who took COVID checks was huge. And the number of people who hustled outside of those COVID checks was also huge. As with the number of people applying, uh, applying to be called uh, essential workers. Exactly. They, they wanted the declaration for the purpose of freedom. That's right. Uh, you can't lock me in my house. I'm essential to something. That's right. And as much as we hate to say it, the real thing is that M word again. Meaning. Yeah. I'm and essential. I mean something. I mean something. I'm important. I'm valuable. And when work... And it is funny that when you tell someone you're, not a, you're a non-essential worker, stay home, we'll send you a check. Right. How they get their feathers in a ruffle. Correct. And so work is a thin bulwark um, to base meaning on. 
I think we need to thicken that bulwark. I think we need to go back to some things. We need to thicken that with tradition. We need to thicken that with a recognition of, of, of our history and of things that have gone on before us. I think we need to thicken that with a genuine commitment to civic education, uh, which is why you know uh, we, we talk about um, politics in a civic sense on our, on our show. We need to thicken that, that bulwark because it's gotten thin. Uh, do I believe the hour is late? No, actually, I believe that we, like I said before, we are turning into something else. Uh, I think, I think fundamentally, people in the United States have decided they still want to be a republic. We still want to be a republic. What kind of republic will we be, though? That's going to be, that's going to be the real challenge, I think, for the next twenty to thirty years, um, fifteen years at the minimum, but the next twenty to thirty years. What? kind of republic are we going to be? Um, and that's, of course, in spite of World Economic Forum nonsense and shenanigans. You know, you will, have, you will own nothing and enjoy it. Yeah, thanks, Klaus. Okay, cry me a river and tell me another lie and walk away. That's not going to work here. Yeah, we'll um, vote you out of office again. Well, not only are we going to vote you out of office <laughs> again, but Klaus is going to have to come down here out of his ivory tower and actually enforce that. He's going to have to get out of... His, get away from his uh, 70 you know, Navy SEAL trained security guards and come down here and tell me personally. Here's one of the things that COVID actually revealed. COVID revealed in many different kinds of ways what just happens if you just ignore the civil magistrate. And a lot of people just did that. What happens if I just tell you to go pound sand? Well, in Australia and in parts of Canada, they were actually put in jail for it. In Australia, in parts of Canada. In Canada, when they showed up with their trucks and said, you can't do that, they lost their livelihood, they lost their insurance, they lost their ability to banking. Correct. Which, and I think a lot of people have missed this, but I, I look at the ESG scores, and, and Glenn Beck kind of points it out. I, I suspected it before he went into the great detail of the research, so I was glad that his research validated my opinion. But um, the idea that Dylan Mulvaney convinced a marketing person Mm-hmm. to slather their face on the side of a can, or that a marketing person decided that would be genius mm-hmm. all on their own. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take much looking at the numbers to realize the numbers don't lie, and that was a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. However, the fact that they stuck with that idea rather than yelling, Ali, Ali, oxen free, and I am sorry, and, and fixing the problem, we're rectifying it, but have doubled down again and again and again and again and again and again on that ideology tells me that there is greater pressure to succumb to that ideology than there is to resist it. So where did the boycott of Bud Light come from? Who is the leader of that boycott? Uh, the people. It right, was, it came it from the just, individuals. Yeah, and so just I was, mass individuals. But correct. the better question was, who continues to push the ideology through Bud Light because it didn't just stop at that one incident. It mm-hmm. wasn't enough for Kid Rock and his M16 to go out there and start blow or sure. AK-47, whatever it was, to, to start blowing up cans. Right. It wasn't <laughs> enough that at the, right. at the baseball stadiums they couldn't give it away. Right. It wasn't enough that they were literally dumping it out in places because it had lived past its expiry date. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enough that they couldn't sell it anywhere and that their number three, not number two, number three competitor replaced them Mm -hmm. as number one. $30 billion in lost sales, that wasn't enough. They still had to double down and sponsor the Toronto Parade. Mm -hmm. That tells me, uh, John Maxwell says it all the time, change only comes when the pain to change Mm -hmm. is less than the pain to stay the same. Correct. So there's more pressure 
to support an ideology, whether they agree with it or not, than there is to not support it, even though the not supporting it is a $30 billion identifiable pain. So who's exerting enough pain yeah. on the other side to say $30 billion is nothing? Imagine what you could do. I think back to uh, the movie Aladdin. Oh, yeah, okay. Jafar and the genie. Mm -hmm. And the genie goes, don't you know you can't kill a genie? And he said, I, I know I can't kill a genie, but you'd be surprised what you can live through. And so the amount of pressure, the amount of pain, the amount of torture that's being exerted from someone somewhere in some way mm -hmm. um, has impacted Target mm -hmm. and Disney mm -hmm. and Bud Light. Mm -hmm. And it's starting to trickle down from there into through the forms of DEI within the, the workplaces and the HR systems. If you don't hire this kind of person or that kind of person, which is going to be really, really ironic to see how DEI and the Supreme Court's decision mm -hmm. uh, clash with each other mm -hmm. in the same way that the people in the streets and the midterm election clashed with the Dobbs decision. Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be a because the 20% the mm -hmm. of those 20%, 20% of those 20% are the radical screaming tyrant two-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And they tend to react mm -hmm. to DEI or HR or whatever kind of policy comes down from the top. Yeah, and, and, and you know, if you think about, I, I'm glad you brought up Aladdin. You think about Aladdin. Um, Jafar wound up back in the uh, lamp, <laughs> despite his own machinations. Uh, he wound up deceived by power. Um, you are also looking at, interestingly enough, uh, Disney completely and totally wrecking not only Star Wars, but also, and I'm a movie guy, so Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and they're, don't worry, they're going to launch something else, and they're going to $890 million. They're going to call it Star Wars, they're going to call it Indiana Jones, but it ain't going to be for me, and it ain't going to be the thing. Um, these brands <clears throat> that were giants of the 20th century, remember I said we haven't reckoned with the 20th century fully yet, this is part of that reckoning is the destruction of these brands. Now, don't get me wrong. They have a lot of cultural power and a lot of cultural cachet, but ev for every single piece of pressure that is applied in a, in a corporate boardroom to continue to go down a road that doesn't matter, there's an equal amount of, and Newton showed this, showed us this, there's an equal and opposite pressure somewhere far away from that corporate boardroom where somebody goes, we're going to pour this beer out. We're going to go start our own beer company. Um, we're going to go start our own movie company. We're going to go engage with our um, own coffee company. We're going to start the anti-Starbucks. We're going to start the anti-Disney. We're going to build our own infrastructure. Look, we're Americans, so we don't like it when things take time. <laughs> right. We want the destruction to happen immediately, and then we want the rebuilding to happen immediately, and then we want to have a party immediately because we suck at delaying gratification. That's one of our major problems. But guess what? It takes time to build the anti-Disney. It takes time to build the anti-Bud Light. The parallel culture. Correct. It takes time to build the parallel culture, the parallel economy, that will eventually replace that moribund, uh, that moribund and dead-in-the-water legacy brand or that moribund and dead-in-the-water legacy idea. There's a lot of things that are shifting around right now and that are moving around, but what is happening fundamentally at a macro level is equal and opposite reactions. I do not want to overweight the power or underweight the power 
of ESG or venal corporate boardrooms, right? Um, I also don't want to give them too much credit because as much as I might dislike Kathleen Kennedy and her decisions about Star Wars or Indiana Jones, still at the end of the day, she's Kathleen Kennedy. She puts on her pants and she does wear pants one leg at a time. She's no bigger or smaller than anybody else, which means, and this is the fundamental thing, this is why I, I said, you know, the individual idea, individual leadership is really coming back. I have just as much power as she does. This is what the internet has proved. I have just as much ability, not maybe reach or distribution, but I have just as much ability to make impactful decisions on the culture that matters to me as she does. The only difference that she has is a few billion dollars in a budget that she's tied to. That's it. That's it. That's the only difference. Okay. There's enough folks out here like me who have bought this idea over the course not only of the last 20 years of social media, but over the course of the last 50 years of the revolution that we're in with the internet, that we are seeing things slowly shift and move. But again, we're Americans. We're impatient. We want it to happen yesterday. It's going to take a while. And this is why I said earlier in our conversation, I think fundamentally that the generation that I am in is probably a couple of generations ahead of this turn being fully done into a revolution. I think if we're going to frame it sort of in historical contexts, we're not the generation that's the 1776 generation. I ain't part of that generation. That generation is going to be my great-grandkids. I well, think. If you look at the 80-year cycles, what was that... Uh so a recent study that came out, I can't remember exactly where it was at. I was, I'd have to go back and look it up on YouTube. Sure, yeah. They were talking about the, the four 80-year cycles. Yep. And it's been 80 years since the uh, World War II and 80 yep. years before that was the Civil War Civil and 80 War. years before that was the Revolutionary War. And so about every 80 years, there's a major upheaval. Mm -hmm. And it's not just according to American culture, it's, I mean, you can look at it oh, yeah. over thousands of years and you, you continue to see it over and over. So that uh, that's a an interesting factor, I guess from a a summary standpoint, because the only time barrier we have today is you've got other things more important to do than than chat with me. <laughs> this uh, has been, by the way, this has been a great conversation. This has been wide ranging, um, and uh, and I, I really enjoyed this. So thank you for having me on. Thank the, you, Hassan. The How can people reach out to you if they if they wanted to chat with you? Yeah, directly? absolutely. So if people want to get a hold of me. The easiest way to do that is to, of course, go Google me because I'm on Google. I'm, I'm everywhere across the internet. Uh, just Google Hassan Rails. You can find me everywhere on all your major social platforms. Um, you can also find my podcast, The Leadership Lessons from the Great Books, where we read one of the great books of classical literature. You know, the ones that you fell asleep to in high school that you didn't really want to read. <laughs> we read one Cliff of notes. those. Exactly. <laughs> we, we read the non-Cliff Note version of the book and we pull um, about uh, four or five high points uh, for leaders from those books. And we talk about them in wide-ranging conversations, uh, sometimes as short as an hour and a half, sometimes as long as four hours. Um, we've covered books such as uh, Miyamoto Masashi's The Book of Five Rings, uh, a great book. Um, and we've also covered... Um, uh, Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. Um, we've read Jane Austen and Sense and Sensibility, um, but we've also read uh, Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov and Crime and Punishment. So we're covering a wide range here, but we're building out pillars of ideas that business leaders, civic leaders, community leaders, and family leaders can use in their lives coming from this great tradition that we have of, as I said before, the word. Right. 
the primacy of the book, the primacy of the word, which is still the greatest thing that we've ever had in the English language or in the Western world. So check us out on all your major podcast platforms, Google, Spotify, iTunes. I would normally have said Stitcher, but they just got bought out by SiriusXM, so I don't know what's happening with that. Um, and all, of course, your minor uh, your minor platforms. And we are on YouTube. We have episodes on YouTube, um, video episodes of all of, our, of all of our podcasts as well. Uh, so that's one of the major things that I'm doing there. And then, of course, I haven't mentioned this, but I probably should. I am a published author. Uh, my most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, uh, co-written with contributions from uh, Bradley Madigan. You can find that on Amazon, uh, through Ingram Spark, Barnes & Noble, all those other kinds of places where you get books. Um, kind of playing off Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life right. there a little bit. Um, this cover, The book covers the 12 rules, the 12 areas that we think leaders need to be not only competent at, but be an adult at, be intentional at, in order to lead effectively in their families, in their communities, and in their businesses. So you can go pick that up anywhere where you buy books. Excellent. Well, Hassan, I want to say thank you for thank being you here today. I appreciate so. you taking you the time to, to stop in and have a conversation with us and, and share your ideas. Uh, if you're back again, I'd love to have you back again. If you have time to do that, maybe we need to dive into AI and things of that nature. Ooh, I would love to do that. Because there's a whole lot of games being played around that around that world. There and games. for those of you who are watching, I want to say thank you for taking the time to join us here on Lead the Narrative. Um, this whole project is really about exactly what he said. It's about giving voice to those who have not had an opportunity, whose discussions, whose ideas, whose thoughts should be heard. And they don't have a platform to do that. And yes, I know for a fact there are going to be times that I'm going to sit right down here in this chair and there are going to be guests in that chair that I disagree with, that I don't understand, that I cannot come to terms with. But their voice is just as important. Their voice may be more important because their voice may be the one that says, yeah, actually we could do brain surgery in vitro. Because when Ben Carson did it the first time, everybody thought he was nuts. They thought the Wright brothers were nuts too because nobody had ever flown anything. They didn't even have a license. And so there will be ideas that are new to me, that are challenging for me, that are challenging for you. And I still expect and challenge you to be a part of that conversation. Speak up. Send me your YouTube videos. After I had a chance to look at them, I don't intend to edit them. Uh, I don't intend to squash them. But if they are valid and valuable voice, I want them to be a part of leadthenarrative.com. So send me your videos. Send me your comments. Send me your thoughts. And if you're in the Grand Barrier area around Dallas, Texas, Pop in for a visit. We'll turn everything on and, and have an interview right here. Uh, we got more coming up today, and we will have more in the future, including those Man on the Streets interviews. But Lead the Narrative is a really simple concept. We've heard all the narratives that are out there, all the ones that have led us down different pathways, good and bad. And the real question is, what's your story? And how does that fit the big narrative? Are you a part of this fabric of our nation? then you have a story and it matters and I want to hear it. I'm Jay Lauren Norris for Lead the Narrative and I thank you for being here today. Like, share, subscribe on Rumble and share this anywhere that you can. We appreciate it. Have a blessed day.